You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Podcast, Episode 12. Today we kick off with a look at how Donald Trump's promises over the first 100 days of his presidency may affect the markets. In our Your Stock, Our Take segment, we review a viewer question on a leader in the high-flying Canadian marijuana segment, Canopy Growth Corporation. CGC on the TSX. And on our star of the week, we review electrical weapon and body camera manufacturer Taser International, T-A-Z-S-R on the NASDAQ. Another stock that received a Trump bump this past week. Now, if this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Keystocks, and on Facebook. Now let's dig into the show. I would again like to welcome my co-host, Keystone Senior Equity Analyst, a father of one, and a man who, unbeknownst to him, has been elected to take Keystone's entire office to the Grey Cup later this month if his BC Lions beat the juggernaut Calgary Stampeders this Saturday. Mr. Aaron Dunn. That was unbeknownst to me. Thank you. Yeah, and it's in Toronto, so it's quite the flight too. As long as you're as long as you're paying. Yeah, well, hey, we elected you. So I mean it, it was done by democratic election. I, I'm not part of the process. I just gave one vote. It was for you though. Now it's time for uh, it's time for us to look at a a, a report that uh, Aaron put together this past week. Uh, on January 19th, uh, 2017, financial markets and economies throughout the world are going to enter into uncharted and unprecedented phase of history when reality TV star and personal brand marketer Donald Trump is sworn in as the 45th president of the United States. Now, Trump made a plethora of promises throughout his campaign, which covered government corruption, immigration, military infrastructure, and the repayment of government debt, and even civil rights. Many of the changes promised by the new administration border on extreme, while others cross that line entirely. For this reason, investors and experts are clamoring to determine what impact a Trump presidency will have on the markets and the global economics and global economy in general. Now, Aaron has put together this report. It's a summary of some of the key economic topics that the president-elect plans to address during the first 100 days in office. So what was the impetus kind of behind this report, Aaron? Well, obviously, there's, there's, there's a lot of uncertainty in the market right now. With, with Donald Trump's election, it was a huge surprise to a lot of people, and he made some extremely strong statements about what he planned to do with the U.S. economy um, in, in certain areas. And all of these things are going to have an impact on economic growth, um, both in the U.S. and outside of the U.S., and also on the stock markets and investment returns. So... What we wanted to do is just really take a look at what he's what he said um, he wants to achieve over the first hundred days in office. You know what what some of the big policy initiatives are, and then just make an assessment as to what the potential impacts can be um, on the, the the global economy and the stock market. So w- within that, we we've broken we've broken his policy initiatives down into into seven different individual initiatives, so to speak. And what we've seen is we've seen certainly there's 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 some areas where we're we're quite weary and 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 a little fearful about some of his policy initiatives, and there's some areas where there's certainly some short term, at least short term, 
potentially longer opportunities for investors as well. So that's essentially what we're, what we're doing is just looking at what he's what his plans are, at least according to his campaign, and um, you know how how investors can best position themselves over the next six months and 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 beyond. Excellent. Now, why don't we start with your thoughts in regards to international trade? Um, Donald made a number of pronouncements in this area. So why don't, why don't you give us your thoughts on, on how uh, some of those pronouncements and some of, uh, some of what are going to be his policies going forward or could be his policies going forward will affect the markets and the economy in general? Sure. So first, before I even get into that, I want to just, just, just start with, uh, with the caveat that politicians often make some pretty strong calls promises during campaign periods and, and often the end result is watered down um, or even just completely ignored after they after they enter office. So uh, although Donald Trump has made a lot of really strong statements, we can't just assume that he's going to pursue these policies as aggressively as he said he would during the campaign. As well, um, most of these policies are going to require support from Congress and he's only going to be able to pursue them to the extent that he has that support. So even though he's made some pretty strong statements in certain areas, I think that right now we we also have to take a bit of a wait and see approach and, and take what he said in the past with a grain of salt, because in, in a lot of cases, um, the, the, the initiatives that he wants to take are, are clearly outside the, the powers of the office of the president. So he will need support beyond just, just himself and his, his inner circle to, to do these things. But um, so international trade, you, you asked about international trade. So this is really the big one. This is where we see the most risk in his policies. He's taken a very protectionist stance. So he, he has come out as being anti-globalization. He thinks that globalization has um, cost American workers jobs with companies uh, outsourcing production, manufacturing operations overseas, and then selling into the U.S. market. So there's a number of things that he wants to do here. He wants to uh, renegotiate NAFTA. He wants to eliminate the Trans-Pacific Partnership. He wants to label uh, China as a currency manipulator, um, impose significantly higher tariffs on companies, produce products outside of the U.S. And he also wants to empower his regulatory officials to use whatever uh, legal options they have to to crack down on companies that he thinks are abusing the, the current trade laws. So... When you look at something like this, this is this is it's really it's really uncertain how far he's he's going to be able to to take these policies. Uh, the United States is it's it's the economy is is based on trade. So just to start throwing up a a ton of trade trade barriers all of a sudden and 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 attacking your trading partners is is not is not what we think. We, we don't believe that that is going to result in strong economic growth and jobs for the country. And, and we're hoping that his administration figures that out as well. There's certainly changes he can make, um, smaller changes that could potentially result in a stronger job market in the United States. But if he starts erecting trade barriers with other countries, then those countries are going to respond in kind. They're going to erect trade barriers with the United States. And when that happens, basically what you have is is, is a trade war. So um, how, are, how are companies that uh, are, are international companies, national companies in the United States, they're, they're going to they're gonna lose their access to to international markets as well. So this, this is an area that... Um, that we're hoping he's going to really soften on as he kind of looks at the numbers and, and, and make some decisions here. And he's also, in, in many cases, I believe, going to have to have the support of Congress to, to enact some of these policies. You know, NAFTA, obviously, that's a particular importance to, to Canada. 
he he wants to re- renegotiate or or eliminate NAFTA. For the most part, he's been he's been singling out Mexico and not Canada. But I'm sure that that somehow Canada is going to get caught in that as well. It's really too early to tell what that's going to look like, and and we advise people not to panic. But we also have to have to keep in mind that you know NAFTA has actually been amended several times since it was first brought into force in in 1996 so going back to the table and making a few changes is not necessarily going to be going to be a horrible thing for for the Canadian economy I'd also I'd also like to point out that while the United States is our largest consumer of goods we are actually the largest consumer of goods um, that the United States sells as well so we do obviously we are more dependent on them than they are on us but we are still their largest customer so we're optimistic that whatever these changes are, they, they're not going to be disastrous to the Canadian economy. Okay. And I was looking through your report, and I think you, make an, you also make an excellent point in there about the protection of blue-collar workers through protectionist trade practices. Really, this doesn't address the loss of jobs through industrial automation, which I know both myself and you consider to be even a bigger issue than globalization over the next next decade. It is going to be a bigger issue, uh, and I think that it's it's even starting to become a bigger issue now. So if you if you create a situation where you're forcing U.S. companies to bring production back into the United States, then you're 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 basically incentivizing them to, to speed up the automation of their facilities anyway. So I don't think that long-term that's going to, that's going to be a solution to their problem. Um, I, I, I think that it's, it's actually going to cause more problems economically for them and, and, and potentially even more, more job loss over the long term. We've got, we've got all sorts of technologies coming down the line, like driverless cars that are going to displace workers. And the solution in my opinion is to, is to help retrain them to find more work. If, if you, you take the solution of just stifling technological development, then other co- countries are going to embrace that. And the United States in the next few decades will then be the future's developing nation and, and somebody else will be the technological superpower. But yeah, there, there, there's another reason. I think that we just have to see what happens with his with his policies and, and, and take it from there. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think we agree that educating the workforce the workforce rather than putting up walls is a better solution long-term. But, uh, you know, it takes a long-term vision, not a short-term vision uh, when you're talking about educating. True. Now, let's get to your thoughts on Trump's stated tax agenda. How will this affect the markets and the economy generally? Okay, so he's planning major tax cuts pretty much right across the board. His plan is to grow the U.S. economy by 4% a year, create at least 25 million new jobs. So under this plan, a middle-class family with two children would get a 35% tax cut. The number of brackets would be reduced from 7 to 3. The corporate tax rate would be lowered from 35% to 15%. And corporate cash balances stored in overseas jurisdictions could be repatriated to the United States at a tax rate of 10% compared to the full tax rate of, of 35%. So another thing he wants to do is simplify simplify the, the tax code, which I, that would be great. I mean, good luck with that. I, I don't know if that's going to be successful. That would rely pretty much completely on, on Congress, all of these tax initiatives. Uh, However, I believe that the Republicans would, would would support the tax cuts, at least for corporations. This is something that that is a potential short term opportunity 
um, but also a, a potential long-term risk. If if he these are pretty 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 heavy tax cuts. So if he does this, that's going to mean in the short term more money in the, in the pockets of individuals, higher corporate earnings. So that should be good for consumer spending. That should be good for the for the stock market for short term economic growth. The problem, of course, is that we have to we have to go back to the United States. The, their their massive debt, uh, almost eighteen trillion national government debt. Right now, they've got a deficit of about five hundred billion. It's 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 been growing recently. They've done a great job of reducing their deficit from the one point four trillion that it peaked at in two thousand nine. But if they start heading back up in that direction, then we're going to have a lot of risk and uncertainty reinjected back into back into the system, and this can have the opposite effect. Of th- th- this can essentially cause businesses and consumers to 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 not spend because they're they're uncertain of of the economic future of the United States. So while we support an efficient tax system, uh, we support you know as much as reasonably possible keeping keeping as much cash in the hands of individuals and and a system that incentivizes business growth. Just making massive tax cuts at the same time that you're you're planning massive spending increases, I think is is potentially a long-term risk. It's another thing that we'll have to see see how that turns out. One thing that we support wholeheartedly is the 10% tax on the repatriation of capital of uh, corporate cash balances back into the United States. There's estimates put put the amount of cash that U.S. corporations hold overseas at over two trillion dollars, between about two trillion to two point five trillion, and companies. This is this is money earned overseas, so it has not been taxed yet um, in in inside of the United States, and they cannot bring it back into the United States. They cannot invest that capital into America, or they cannot pay it out to their shareholders in dividends unless they incur the full tax rate. So corporations are just hoarding these massive cash balances overseas since they don't want to lose 35% of it by bringing it back into the United States. Um, it's not doing any good to the economy sitting overseas. I 100% support, I think it's long overdue, to give them a tax break to bring that capital back. And then that that opens up the possibility that, that there could be a massive reinvestment of capital into the U.S. economy, um, as well as is, is payment of, of dividends to, to shareholders with that money. So I, I think that that is, that, is a, that is a good policy. Yeah, it'll be very interesting on your last point there to see how the repatriation, how, how many companies take advantage of that if it is, in fact, enacted and uh, the effect that that has on the stock market, whether dividends are increased, whether it incre- increases investment uh, within the U.S. economy, it may be a policy that actually could work. Now, let's talk about immigration. This is a hot button issue for sure. Uh, Donald Trump has made a number of statements in this regard. Uh, your quick thoughts here. Yeah, I think that immigration was one of the policies that, that God have elected, um, somewhat surprisingly to some people. So basically, he, he wants to crack down on, on illegal immigration. So one of the things he wants to do is build a massive wall between the United States and Mexico. Um, he also wants to round up and deport the the um, unauthorized immigrants, illegal immigrants that currently reside in the United States. So he puts that number, some of the numbers that I've seen, I don't know exactly how he defines an illegal immigrant. He puts the number at two to three million. Uh, the research I've done puts the number more at 11 million. So bottom line, between the the, the building this massive wall, um, I know he says that Mexico will pay for it. We'll, we'll see about that. But between building the wall where estimates put the cost of that at upwards of 25 billion 
Um, and, but then also the, the bigger cost is going to be, you know, putting together task force, a task force to investigate, round up, detain, deport, you know, up to 11 million people. That's going to cause that's that, that's going to be a massive expense. It's going to cause a lot of friction between the federal government and certain cities known as sanctuary cities, um, certain states. There's going to be some costly battles. The bottom line is, I think that this is just going to cost a lot of money. And I don't think it's going to don't think it's going to add any economic value to the United States. In fact, I think the, the bigger potential is that it will probably disrupt local labor markets and local economies and just just end up costing a lot of money. I'd have to agree with you on that. Now, energy, this is a big issue for particularly for Canadian investors, um, Western Canadian investors, Western Canadians in general. Uh, how do you believe Trump's policies and uh, going forward are going to affect the energy markets generally in North America? Well, if you're if you're uh, an energy producer or if you're in the energy sector in the United States, then Trump win should be a big net positive for you. He basically wants to completely, from what I've, I've read, completely deregulate that industry and, and remove any barriers to the development of U.S. energy resources. He also wants to approve any type of critical infrastructure projects, such as the Keystone XL pipeline that would run from um, Alberta down to the United States and provide Canadian oil and gas producers with greater access to the U.S. market, but also access to um, potentially to international markets through the Gulf of Mexico. So generally, that, that, that's a net positive for the, for the energy industry overall. Really, though, this, what this does is this, this deals with the, the supply side of the economics. It doesn't deal with the demand side. You, you still have pretty stagnant growth internationally. You have, uh, you have OPEC that would probably uh, reduce production if, if the United States got more competitive because there's, there's, been, there's been some wars over that over the past couple of years where, you know, when the United States was, was developing its unconventional um, oil and gas resources and increasing production and putting a damper on the price, then countries like Saudi Arabia supported basically more production to lower the price and make the United States less competitive. So there, there's a possibility that the bottom line is that this is this is good for energy producers because it removes the barriers, but it's not for, for, for there to be a stable pricing environment. We need to see more demand in the market. And this doesn't really this doesn't really touch on the demand issue. Now, for Canadian producers, somewhat of a different story. So approval of the Keystone XL would be would be a net positive to to the Canadian energy market. But what I think the, the bigger issue is, is just the difference between the regulatory environment in the United States and Canada. So in Canada, we have an NDP government in Alberta. We have a liberal government federally. And the, the regulations, the environmental regulations and barriers for our energy market, they just keep increasing. Um, there's, there's a proposed carbon tax, which would be a, a, another large expense for the energy sector. So the regulatory environment up here in Canada is getting more complicated and more expensive, whereas in the United States, Donald Trump wants to remove all these 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 obstructions, and he he that certainly a carbon tax is not even close on the table for him. So I see a big disparity between the, the competitiveness uh, of the market in Canada and the United States. We don't have access to in international markets outside of the United States. The United States is about... 99% of our export markets. So it, it makes me wonder how Canadian producers are going to be able to compete in, in that situation. 
Yeah, it it is an interesting scenario that you've got there. A positive in terms of regulation in the U.S. Um, we have more stringent regulation in Canada. Now, is this and, and in terms of just the prices of energy going forward, if you're if you're reducing regulation to increase production, increase uh, work in this industry generally, um, in a weak global growth environment, does this put a ceiling? on energy prices or even put pressure on them um, and and so you have an environment that's friendly to that sector but with lower prices that's not friendly to profits or cash flow in this segment so uh, you, you may have a scenario where you know companies have a friendly environment but they're not producing the cash flow necessary to really push prices of these stocks higher yeah and exactly and given the the situation that we're looking at right now the the Canadian energy space is is not something in terms of oil and gas is not something that that I would be investing in. I'd, I'd be a little wary of that sector right now for those reasons. It's definitely a concern for us right now, and we don't have much exposure there generally. Now we're going to move on to infrastructure and military spending. There's a ton of promises made here, kind of light on the substance in terms of those promises. But uh, your take on 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 Trump's promises in this segment. Okay, so he's he's promised a major investment into rebuilding infrastructure in the U.S. So specifically, he says he wants to leverage public-private par- partnerships um, and private investments through tax incentives. And he's looking at a trillion dollars in infrastructure investment over the next 10 years. He also says that he wants to rebuild the U.S. military and, and eliminate the defense, the defense sequester. And expand military investment. No, on the military, no specific amounts were, were provided. So... At least in the short term, once again, infrastructure and military spending is going to add fiscal stimulus to the U.S. economy, and that's going to bolster certain industries, increase corporate earnings, and, and create jobs, at least in the short term. But we're, we're, we're going back now to the, to the deficit, deficit issue. So Donald Trump wants to drastically reduce uh, taxes, yet at the same time, he wants to increase spending. And you already have a major major problem with, with the U.S. debt that they've once again, they've they've dealt with well over the past over the past three, four, five years. But if they start moving back in that direction, then you're going to have concerns once again about global stability. If you have more risk injected into the system um, in that respect, then then that's going to make it hard to convince businesses to invest capital into into infrastructure because they they want to make sure that they're going to get a return on that investment and. That's going to be regardless of what the tax rate is. So I think it's going to be, it, it may be difficult for Trump to convince private industry to, to foot a lot of the bill for that. I think it might be more of a dream than a reality, but we'll, we'll see what happens. And with military spending, of course, that's just purely government expense. So that's just going to, more military spending is just going to, uh, it's just going to come out of the deficit. Yeah. And we have been looking at companies that could be potentially affected by a spending increase in this segment, uh, but again, the company certainly there's 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 definitely there's definitely opportunities there, and that's what we're seeing as well. At least in the short term, there's big opportunities because there's going to be companies that are not even necessarily um, servicing the military directly, but possibly servicing companies that service the military uh, or service regions that have co- large companies that service the military. So there's going to be there's going to be yeah, opportunities uh, ancillary opportunities we we find those uh, through our research all the time and and there's some companies that we're looking at right now 
we you know we have to stress that they have to be standing on their two feet already they have to be trading probably at reasonable valuations as it stands right now and then the upside is if you know you see a pickup in infrastructure and military spending they could benefit from that now let's move on to the regulatory environment your thoughts here so his policy is 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 smaller government deregulate the the industries uh, so what his plan is is to for every new proposed re, for every new proposed federal regulation you would have they would have to eliminate two existing regulations um, right now in terms of this policy it's it's really impossible to to see how it's going to work out because we haven't seen it in action yet and it's it's really all about the the execution we're we're certainly support uh we're against sorry we're against unnecessary regulation and we're against red red tape that's a hindrance to economic development but with that being said we do think that this particular proposal just it seems quite arbitrary there isn't any criteria that's provided to determine which types of regulations would be removed and we also have to remind ourselves although we don't want an environment that's overly regulated regulations do exist for a reason um, they may lower the, the burden on companies and result in, in short-term growth and activity over the short term, of course, but long-term, mid-term consequences could be disastrous. And, and a good example of that is the 2008 financial crisis not originated a large part from the unregulated uh, credit markets in the United States. In Canada, we, we, had a, a much, we had a much higher level of regulation in our banking industry and our credit markets, and that's one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why we were able to escape a lot of the problems that uh, the United States had. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, the pendulum may have swung too far one way and too far the other way at times, but in terms of our regulation in the Canadian market saved us from you know going into a, a credit tight crisis that we saw in the U.S. and um, that is one sector that that needs has proven that they need and it needs regulation and uh, you know taking a, a kind of an arbitrary policy into that sector would be I would tread very lightly there. So, do you have any conclusions or any uh, final words you want to put on, on the uh, the commentary that you put together? Sure. I just, just, just a reminder again that, that right now it's, it's nobody knows exactly what policies are going to be enacted and, and, and what the impacts are going to be, how aggressively they're going to be pursued. So we just have to remember that, that a lot of what he plans to do is going to require the support of Congress, and we, we, we just don't know. So right now we think that we, our best advice to investors is just not to panic. Um, don't necessarily hold off on on buying stocks or buying stocks in the U.S. However, we do see potential for a lot of lot of volatility in the future over the course of the next year and perhaps throughout Trump's presidency for for a number of reasons. And when we're looking at volatile uncertain markets, what we have generally advised our our investors to do is to keep a portion of their their investment capital outside of the market, just ready to to pounce on opportunities um, in case of of volatility or some type some type of a market correction so that's what we're doing right now just just advising people to remain calm you know look at some of the opportunities here if we do see volatility throughout the the at least the the first six months perhaps at trump's term i i, I think that that's going to be an opportunity and and that's really what we're focusing on is is you know 
using that volatility as an opportunity to to purchase high quality companies at, at, at better prices and then to hold those companies um, over the course of a few years. Yeah, and I think it's kind of funny, at least anecdotally, we, we had a chat right before uh, election day, basically, we had two companies that we'd done extensive research on that we were just going to release in our US coverage. And uh, we had considered potentially pulling back and not releasing those reports until we saw the, the result of the election. But, you know, we're so company specific focused in our research that, you know, we decided, you know, these are good companies really regardless of whether it's a Clinton or a Trump presidency. So, you know, we issued those recommendations really a day before the election. And, you know, again, we're at this point, we're happy we did so. One of the recommendations, both the recommendations are up already. One of them is up just under 30% in the past couple of weeks. So, you know, you can still find good companies, market uncertainty or not. And that's kind of uh, when you're focusing really company specific, um, we, we want to stress that there's going to be volatility and uncertainty. There's going to be opportunity. We just got to be nimble and take advantage of that. Okay, we're going to move on to our next segment here. Our next segment is our, our star of the week. From our stars and dogs segment, it's time for this week's star. The company is Taser International, T-A-S-R on the NASDAQ. It operates through two segments, Taser Weapons and Axon. Through Taser Weapons, it develops, manufactures, and sells conducted electrical weapons, or CEWs, worldwide. So the company's CEWs transmit electrical pulses along wires and into the body, affecting the sensory and motor functions of the peripheral nervous system, delivering the type of shock most of the world felt when they woke up last Wednesday to the idea of Donald Trump being president of the United States of America. Now, Taser's Axon brand included a includes a growing suite of connected products and services from body cameras and digital evidence and management tools to mobile apps. Now, between November 9th and 10th, the company's shares surged almost 20%, coinciding with two events. The first... The Trump win, the second, which is a more sustainable push, came from the release of the company's third quarter results, which showed continued growth in both taser weapons and Axon body cameras. Now, beating Wall Street's expectations like taser did in its third quarter can often lead to a large move in the stock. So let's take a look at the numbers. Sales for the third quarter were up 42% to $71.9 million. Net income was up. 152% to 3.8 million. Earnings per share were up 130% to 7 cents per share from 3 cents in the same period last year. Where did the strength come from? Well, it's weapon sales, electric weapons up 34%. Uh, it's driven by these weapon sales. And, and really, the future, though, belongs to the Axon body camera segment. Uh, revenues in this segment were up 75% to 19 million. Now within Axon, service revenue uh, was up 180% to 8.7 million. Now this will be a long-term bottom line growth driver for Taser International because the sub subscription model that it has here is a multi-year contract from law enforcement agencies. They have multi-year contracts there, so it should provide stable long-term income. 
the good news is that about 89% of Axon's bookings came with a multi-year contract. That keeps service revenues growing and that's very good high margin business long-term. Now let's look at the numbers here. The growth is great, but what are we being asked to pay for this growth is really what we, we look at. And this is where we get to the valuations. Uh, this company is a trailing PE and when we say trailing PE, we mean over the last 12 months, in terms of its earnings, price to earnings multiple, it's 97. The forward PE, so based on what the market estimates this company will earn going forward, it's at, got a PE of 57. Its enterprise value to EBITDA is about 40. Now we typically are looking at buying companies between five and 15, depending on their growth and everything, but this is an extremely high multiple. This looks like a classic case of what seems to be a very good growth company in a strong sector, but it's not trading at really attractive prices right now, particularly following the Trump bump this company received. The stock is priced to relative perfection right now, and if it, it's as if the market wishes it would continue to grow at an earnings rate of 50 to 75%. That is very, very difficult, even for the best of the best in terms of companies. Now it's performance over the last week earns the stock the coveted status of our star of the week, but we caution listeners that at current prices, you are paying a steep premium for this growth stock. We would look for a pullback at least of 20% before the stock became more reasonably priced. Any thoughts on that company, Aaron? I just think that, that, that that's certainly one of the areas that we, we see opportunity is, is, is in that space. Anything associated with, uh, with security is, is, is an area where we think there's going to be, there's going to be money flowing into that over, over at least the next couple of years. Yeah, for sure. We're, we're looking in that segment. We just want to buy a stock that is relatively reasonably priced and, and that's the key. You can have a high flying sector and high flying companies. Um, you need to find them at a reasonable price. And speaking of high-flying sectors, that's a segue right there. Um, we, we're going to, in our Your Stock, Our Take segment, we've got a question sent in by Craig Sadler from Halifax on a high-flying stock. That's Canopy Growth Corporation, CGC on the TSX. Now, Canopy Growth is a leading cannabis company offering a diverse brand of curated cannabis strain varieties in dried and oil extract forms. The company owns its wholly owned subsidiaries, Tweed Farms and Bedrock Canada. Uh, through them, Canopy operates the three state-of-the-art production facilities with over half a million square feet of indoor and greenhouse production capacity. There's tremendous growth here in terms of revenues in the second quarter of its fiscal 2017. 22% increase over its first quarter to 8.5 million and year over year it's a 245% increase in revenue. Now net income uh, showed at 5.4 million so the company at first glance appears to be profitable on that revenue but the numbers uh, do not include a non-cash or they include sorry a non-cash unrealized gain on changes in fair value of biological assets of 16.1 million. So really the company on the revenue, the tremendous revenue growth, but it's not even close to being profitable. So in reality, it posts a very sizable loss. Now there's a big election bump here. Can Canopy was a $4 stock at the beginning of October. Today it's trading at $12.60 and now boasts a market cap of nearly 1.5 billion. 
The rally on this stock picked up steam in the wake of the U.S. election as investors bet Canopy could benefit from a wave of pot positive votes in a number of U.S. states. We saw California, Nevada, Maine, Massachusetts just vote to legalize recreational marijuana and join Oregon, Alaska, Washington, Washington, D.C., and Colorado where recreational sales are already permitted. Florida, Arkansas, and North Dakota all voted in favor of legalizing cannabis for medical purposes, bringing the total number of states that now allow medical use to 30. The end result means that nearly 25% of Americans live in states that will be allowed to use recreational uh, marijuana. That's a huge potential market and the reason why cannabis stocks are attracting so much attention. Now let's look at the valuations. Now, from almost every measure, the underlying fa fundamentals are completely decoupled from the stock's uh, market cap or valuation. Currently, analysts are forecasting that the pot market could hit an estimated peak value of sales of five to eight billion by 2020. That's if legalization goes off without a hitch. Canopy stock is up 320% since August and is trading with a market cap, like I said, of 1.5 billion. Or that's 25 to 35% of this dream scenario peak market. Now the growth, like I said, is tremendous here. Its patient base is up 430% between 2015 and 2016. And the market cap, but the market cap doesn't warrant such an extremely bloated valuation even by the most bullish forecast. The stock, it doesn't have a price to earnings because there's no earnings there, but the stock is trading at around 70 times revenue, which falls just below massive companies like Uber, which are you know changing the, the way we travel uh, throughout the world. Uh, even if we put a generous 10 times multiple on next year's expected revenues, and remember I'm talking about revenues here, not profits, um, we always put multiples off of profits because we've seen companies grow revenues over and over again, but never make a bottom line and the stock eventually crashes. But if we put a 10 times multiple on next year's revenue, having said all that, the stock is worth probably between five uh, and 650. So what's the bottom line here? The long-term potential for the industry is certainly enticing. Canopy is enjoying its position as a leader in the early innings. As such, we can understand the excitement, but at this point, we would stay on the sidelines and wait for a pullback and see some profitability there. Canopy looks too risky at current levels. It just doesn't fit our investment criteria. Any thoughts on that, Aaron? I just think we've seen this cycle repeat itself many times where, where an industry pops up. It's, 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 it's got a lot of potential in the future and investors bid, bid prices up just based on pure speculation and, and fantasy as opposed to anything close to actual fundamentals. And what we see virtually every time is it gets to a point where investors realize that the, the growth is unsustainable, growth in the, in the share prices, and then the industry falls apart. Um, it's at that point that we think we can start finding some really good opportunities, fundamental opportunities, because you will find a couple of profitable companies at that point that are thrown out with the bathwater, so to speak, and, and that's the opportunity to buy them. So I think that we, we could be in this space at some point, but right now it's, it's, it's difficult to be in the space given the valuation. I mean, you just can't, you can't analyze these companies fundamentally from a, from an earnings and profitability basis. And I just, I, I was looking at some information just this week, um, talking about the industry and about how there's, there's a lot of price competition coming up right now. And that's, that's 
generating concerns about actually how profitable any of these businesses can be. So the the fact of the matter is we just don't know what the financial situation of these companies are going to look out look like uh, when they start to mature, and, and we need to be able to see that before we can do an analysis ourselves and, and make an intelligent investment. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Well, again, thanks for uh, thanks for co-hosting with me again this week, um, and we wish our investors uh, and our clients and our listeners profitable investing. Profitable investing.